a quick search for top baby names of 2020, and you won't be surprised to know Mephibosheth is not among them. <laughs> I don't know anybody by that name. I'm pretty sure you don't either. And all the pages of the Bible, which contain some 3,237 different characters, there are only two named Mephibosheth. Both appear in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. One is the son of Israel's King Saul. He's mentioned once. And the other, the son of King Saul's son Jonathan, is referenced just 14 times in 12 verses of the 31,000 plus verses found in the Bible. Which is to say, Mephibosheth is a relatively obscure fellow as far as the Bible goes. And you may not even have heard of him until today. And yet, that is part of the beauty of God's word, that every piece is included on purpose for a purpose. Our text from 2 Samuel 9 ends in a rather odd way. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. If you turn the page to the next chapter looking for some sort of explanation, you're not going to find it. Chapter 10 continues with the exploits of King David. So to learn the story behind the ending of chapter 9, you actually have to look back to chapter 4. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of King David's close friend, Jonathan. He was the grandson of Israel's first king, Saul. David served King Saul, who was an erratic and at times a faithless man. This is the Saul who was jealous of David and pursued him and tried numerous times to have him killed. And yet David, when he had opportunity, did not harm Saul. Just because somebody hates you doesn't mean you have to hate them back. King Saul was wounded in battle, and rather than suffer at the hands of his enemies, he fell on his own sword and expedited his death. His son Jonathan, along with two brothers, were killed in that same battle. Those are the details that help us to know how David became king and why Mephibosheth was hurried out of town. As Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth was heir to the throne which was clearly going to be given to David, both because God's prophet Samuel had said so and because of David's popularity among the people. Now, it was a known practice of some incoming kings, a practice that continues even today in some dictatorial regimes, to wipe out any trace of the previous leaders, the previous king's heirs. That means to kill them. This was a chance that Mephibosheth's nurse was not willing to take. So she snatched five-year-old Mephibosheth and went on the run. And literally, in her haste to bring the boy to safekeeping, she dropped him. And it wasn't a little drop. 
She dropped him so severely that both of his feet were permanently damaged. And as a result, he would be crippled for life. We know it is good not to run with scissors in your hands. Apparently, it's not good to run with children in your arms either. The escape was successful. Mephibosheth melted into the masses. And he lived in relative anonymity, and yet we might imagine with a pervasive and daily sense of dread for the reasons that led his nurse to take him away in the first place, no doubt had been repeated to him over and over and over again. It is highly likely that even after 15 years and being a grown man with a child of his own, this son of Jonathan held in his heart and in his mind a deeply rooted fear of King David. Which brings us to our passage for today. David is indeed king of all Israel, and he's a prosperous king. His successful exploits are well known, starting with that whole slaying the giant thing. And his victories over Israel's enemies are cause for national pride. He's a popular king, and he ruled, we read, with justice and fairness. Less secure men than David, perhaps less godly men than David, would have been threatened by any remaining family of King Saul but not David. He had promised to do what other kings before him, he had promised not to do what other kings before him would do. Even though he'd been hunted by Saul, even though Saul's followers tried to kill him, and many would have if they had the chance, David wanted to do something different. David wanted to do something good. This for us, minimally, is a lesson of what to do when you have power and what to do if you have influence. When the dust settled, the now King David inquires, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, long ago, right after he had slain Goliath, David made a covenant with his friend Jonathan now Jonathan had been killed, but David had been blessed, and he wants to share his blessings, and he wants to honor his word. He wants to know if there's anyone left in Jonathan's line in the house of Saul to whom he could show kindness. And kindness here is the word used of God's kindness, the, the word used in the Bible to describe God's kindness. It's chesed, covenant faithfulness. Who would know the answer to his question? There was a man named Ziba. He and his family had been servants of King Saul. So David inquires of him, verse 3, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now this is not just a nicety that David wants to extend. To the one who has received mercy, mercy is what? Required. Those who know grace are to show grace. What is grace? Grace, says Pastor Chuck Swindoll, is extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, and can never repay it. And Ziba remembered there was a grandson, a son of Jonathan. He wouldn't have much value to the king. He definitely is no threat. 
He's crippled in both his feet. King David summoned this grandson of Saul. Normally a person would be honored, maybe happy to receive an invitation from a dignitary, a ruler. But under these circumstances, not so much. But this wasn't the kind of invitation either that one could ignore. You can't say no thank you when the king says, I want to see you. Because if you do, the king's men just might show up and help you make your appointment. What do you suppose was running through Mephibosheth's mind when he received this invitation? Well, my, my, my cover is blown. I'm in trouble now. The peace and the quiet of his nursemaid's witness protection program is over. <laughs> what could the king possibly want with a man like him? except maybe to rid the earth of him. Picture the scene. A hobbled, humble, fearful Mephibosheth approaches the king. And the king is everything that he is not. Ruling and strong and powerful and confident. And Mephibosheth, deposed, weak, impotent, and afraid. And Mephibosheth falls at David's feet, and he is fearful for his life. But he needn't be, because he's going to find out very soon the king has not called him to kill him, but has called him to bless him. Do not fear, said David, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth can hardly fathom this unsolicited, unexpected favor of the king that after all this time the king would seek him out in order to give him what he did not deserve, what he could not earn, what he could never repay. What is your servant that you should show regard, he said, for a dead dog such as I? The wild dogs... The ones who roamed free, undomesticated, were a cause of contempt and dislike in that culture. And this is something, by the way, that you're going to experience, too, if you accompany us ever on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> we go down there to work in, on the school in Kaleo Mariah. We go down to work on the service projects with the church in San Pedro de Marcaris. Not only the presence of pet dogs every once in a while, but more so the notable population of wild dogs dogs living in and off the streets and the dogs are viewed by many if not by most as a nuisance they survive by eating trash so you can imagine what kind of a mess they make they are dirty they are mangy they are wild dogs and if not abused which many of them are they are at best ignored they are killed and they die and when they do, they lay right where they fall, to rot in the hot sun. What do you suppose is in the heart of a man to regard himself as one of those contemptible dogs? His lameness, which is all he has known for his whole life, 
which precludes him from casual walks and running games and playing with his own son. His crippledness that keeps him from being productive like the other people, his age, and all but ensures that he can never pay his own way. His life on the run, the fall from grace of his family, his major life losses at such a young and vulnerable age, no dad, no mom, whatever the reason for his sense of worthlessness, we can be sure Mephibosheth believes it. In other words, his self-deprecation is not some, some form of manipulation. He's not just saying something that he doesn't believe. He believes it. It is real. This is how he sees himself. But you know what? It has no bearing on the circumstances. And you know why? Because it's not about what he thinks about himself. It's about the king's character. And it's about what the king intends. Long ago, this king made a covenant. And he's going to fulfill it. And he does that. By bringing Mephibosheth, I know I was going to trip over that, but I'm surprised. I'm really surprised I got that far to himself and to offer him relief, to give him comfort, to give him an inheritance, maybe most stunningly to give him a place in his house and a literal seat at his table for all his days. Because David made Mephibosheth one of his sons. In today's language, we would say, oh, man, he adopted him. That's what he did. David adopted Mephibosheth. Yes, yes, he's a, he's a young adult with a child of his own, but that does not disqualify him from being adopted. That does not mean that he had no need for a dad. That does not mean that he had no longing for a father. And David stepped in to become the father that he never had. And that's the reason for the title of today's message in loco parentis. The term is Latin. means in the place of a parent. It refers to the legal responsibility of a person or an organization to take on some of the functions and responsibilities of a parent. And a lot of the people right here, right now, have had or still have experience within loco parentis. If you have been or are a residential child care counselor, a daycare attendant, a public school teacher, a coach, a camp counselor, I could go on and on, but you have functioned in the role and in the place of a parent or parents who were absent. If you have ever brought a child into your home for safety or respite care, through the Department of Human Services or through the Safe Families Program, if you have put in the hard work and the training as several of our families here have to become foster parents you know about in loco parentis. Being or becoming a parent in the place of someone's parent is one of the ways to parent God's way. And in keeping with our series, it's one of the ways to have a biblical home, to parent a child for his or her good on behalf of God and for God's glory. The original plan for today included a testimony about foster parenting from Terry Stutz, 
who's heading up our foster family support program, but as many of you know, Terry had surgery a while ago and she's having some struggles recovering and even had some setbacks and I believe at this point is in the hospital. So we talked and she was a, a, a disappointed that she couldn't follow through today, but she said, Pastor, I hope there'll be another opportunity. Well, no, Terry, I'm sorry, we're not gonna talk about this. <laughs> anymore. This is a one and done kind of thing. Absolutely. There's going to be another opportunity and another opportunity and another because it is clear, not just through Terry, but through other families in our fellowship who have fostered and adopted and those who are actively fostering and adopting, those who are helping with foster family support. This really is part of our current DNA as a body at United Baptist. And it's an area of ministry that the Lord is growing in us. And that is a really, really good development. Because throughout Scripture, we are told multiple times to care for orphans. Maybe, maybe the best-known verse here is, is found in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. It says, Pure religion and undefiled before our, Father and before our God and Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Pure religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. This word translated visit means much more than drop in. It means to look upon or to look after, to inspect or examine with one's eyes, to see how a person is doing. It means to look upon in order to help or to benefit. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James singles out the care of orphans and widows as examples of true religion that is pleasing to God. Why do you suppose that is? Well, the significance of these two groups might escape us in a modern world, and we do live in a society that has multiple layers of, of social safety nets. But if we could go back to Jesus' time, if we can go back even before that to, to more of this original context of some of the Old Testament law and expectations, Orphans and widows hold this in common. They are at once the groups that are most vulnerable to exploitation and the effects of life's hardships. The ones who in that culture would find it most difficult, if not impossible, to provide for themselves. And they are the ones who had little to offer in return, at least materially, to any who might draw alongside them to help. Bless you. So of all that religion is and can be, the real sort is that which helps those who through no fault of their own are in positions where they find it difficult to help themselves. That's what religion is. And this help is given with no expectation of return. So that is what David is doing for Mephibosheth. That is what foster parents do. That is what families do when they find other family members aren't up to the task of parenting. That is what adoption does. And all of this sort of commitment and sacrifice is love. And it's loving God's way. And it's parenting God's way. So Mephibosheth took a seat at the table of the king. He became like one of the king's sons. Now is that a beautiful picture. That is heartwarming. That is a tale of grace. 
Grace extended, grace received. That is an account of rescue. That is an account of restoration. Does it remind you of any other accounts in the Bible? I, I pray that your hearts have burned a little bit at different points in the telling of this story. That, 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 that it has resonated from time to time at least in the unseen but palpable presence of a grander theme and an eternal plot. Because as appealing as this story is, and as important as the moral lesson of using one's position of influence to seek out those in distress, to care for them is, this story from 2 Samuel was, at the time of its happening, a precursor of something yet to come, and a taste of what we know has come in Jesus Christ. The literal occurrence of the kindness of David shown to Mephibosheth is a theological picture of the kindness of God shown to us in Christ. The kindness of David shown to Mephibosheth is a theological picture of the kindness of God shown to mankind in Christ Jesus. Biblical scholars call this typology. A type is simply a pattern. According to pastor and author David King, a type is a shadow whose greater reality is the substance. The shadow could be a person, an event, or an institution in the Old Testament that God has designed to prefigure something greater than itself. When it comes to typology as it relates to Jesus, David Murray provides a helpful definition. A type is a real person, place, object, or event. In other words, it is true, it is real, it is factual, it's not a made-up allegory. That God ordained, it resembled Jesus' person and work, it's not mere coincidence, but by divine plan, to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance. The same truth is found in the Old Testament picture as in the New Testament fulfillment of Jesus' person and work. The truth in the picture is enlarged, it is heightened, it is clarified in the fulfillment that we see in Jesus Christ, right? So a type is a real person, place, object, or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. In other words, beloved, I think you know this, but let me just make sure, Jesus Christ is not a New Testament phenomenon. Jesus Christ is not just a charismatic historical figure who said some profound things while he was sucking earth's air for 33 years and then he's gone. Jesus Christ is the transcendent word of God who has existed from eternity and he is found in all of scripture. Scripture that points to and is fulfilled in him. If you have your Bibles handy, turn with me if you would to Luke's gospel Chapter 24. Let's go to Luke 24 for a few minutes. While you're getting there, let me give you a little bit of the basic context or the setting anyway. This is just after the resurrection of Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus encounters two men who are discussing the events of the past weekend. We'll pick it up in verse 13. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Just think about that for a second, would you? Who's he talking to? <laughs> Nobody knows better the events that have happened over the last few days. But Jesus is interested to know what do you think of them, right? And he said to them, perfect. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the Bible study you want to sit in on. <laughs> Jesus describing himself in all the scriptures. But what scriptures did he have? The old Testament is what he was using, showing himself from the Old Testament. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. You almost get the sense that Jesus is enjoying this very much. <laughs> but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scripture. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Throughout the Old Testament, there are types, there are shadows, there are forerunners to Jesus. Now, one must be careful, of course, not to see him where he isn't. Right? Jesus is not found in every tent peg and scarlet thread in the Old Testament. But when we see a pattern, when we see a resemblance... When our hearts burn, when we read an Old Testament account, and we know there's something there related to the redemption story. 
it may very well be a glimpse of the gospel. Who does Mephibosheth remind you of? He lives in exile. He literally lives in a place called Lodivar, a name that means the barren land. That is a place of emptiness and dissatisfaction and frustration. He has been separated from his father. He has been dispossessed of his land and inheritance. And now he lives afraid. The story in 2 Samuel reverberates with echoes from Eden. The fall of man. The story of Adam and Eve. The human story. My story. Your story. Mephibosheth is a type of fallen man. But a shepherd king with the power of life and death in his hand arrives on scene and asks for him and pursues him. Who does that remind you of? Beloved, the word. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did he come for but to seek and to save that which was lost? But Mephibosheth is, is heir to an overthrown king, and he's subject of a fallen kingdom. And so he is a natural enemy to the one who calls him. And so he's rightly afraid of the king, as are we, separated from God. Members of the kingdom of darkness until or unless we become members of the kingdom of light. And because of our sin and because of our sinfulness, enemies of a holy God. In, in, instinctively fearful of what he can do to us. Intuitively, even those who say, I don't even believe in God. But intuitively, people understand there is a God. And he is a consuming fire. Mephibosheth could not ignore the invitation of the king, and it's a good thing, because he had badly misjudged the motives of the one who held the keys to his future. And so do we, believing somehow that God wants to rob us of life, that God wants to take our lives when, in fact, his whole desire is to give it. Even when we have the words of the king right in front, of, in front of us, is there anyone left that I may show kindness to? Is there anyone left that I may show kindness to? And this kindness, this grace, was what awaited Mephibosheth. This man who went to the king empty-handed returns with his hands full. He is not condemned, he is blessed. He is not rejected, he is accepted. And not just accepted, but made an heir and given a home. And he's granted a seat at, at the father king's table where he was going to eat. Not just today, not tomorrow, not for a week, not for a month, but continually, it says, for all his days. And this kindness, this grace, is what awaits those who respond to the invitation of Jesus who says, come to me and find the rest that you're looking for. Come to me, all you who are tired of striving to be good enough. 
Come to me, you who have been living in the land of Lodibar, in a barren place, in a place of spiritual dissatisfaction and emptiness and frustration. Come to me, you who are my enemy. Come to me, you who are spiritually crippled. Come to me, you who are without father or mother. Come sit at my table. Eat my bread. Drink my wine. Pull up a chair and stay forever. The day Mephibosheth answered the king's call was the day he became a son of the king. And the day we say yes to the invitation of Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord, we too become children of the king. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When sin entered the world, it messed up this relationship for all of us. You know that, right? Jesus came to restore it. Jesus came to give us a seat at God's table. And you know what? He did that by giving up his own seat. By leaving the splendor of heaven to be born in the form of a man and to become a servant to men, to live without sin in order to pay the penalty for ours. The Son of God, God himself, couldn't go any lower than to be buried in the earth, which he did. But he didn't stay there. Because his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against us for our sin. And Jesus' righteousness is given to us who by faith will receive it. And so by the grace of God, you and I can belong. By the grace of God, we have a seat at God's table. Amen. Amen. This seat. This place in God's kingdom is not just for now. It's beautiful now, in fellowship with our creator, living out our purpose for which we were made. But you do understand this, right? We're not going to eat his bread for a day, for a week, for a month, for the span of our years on this earth, but for eternity, for the duration of this life, and through to the life which is to come, the life that will never end. That's what it means to have a seat at God's table. You prepare a table before me, wrote David about his shepherd king. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do we do with this, friends? How do we respond to this? Uh, let me offer three things this morning. First of all, is if you have not said yes to the invitation of Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that today. In other words, God is extending an invitation to you through his gospel to become one of his children and find that seat at his table. And if you've never made that decision, you can do that right now and you can become part of the family of God. 
And I encourage you to do that if you have not. Second, if you have made that decision, you made that decision last year, five years ago, maybe 40, 50 years ago, but you are part of God's family and a member in the kingdom of light, then this text does it not cause you to well up in your heart with praise that God would take you and I crippled Mephibosheth, stumbling to find our way to him, summon us, come, and we say, yes, what do you want, God, with a dead dog like me? What do I have to give to you? And he says, it ain't about what you have to give to me, friend. It's what I want to give to you. Eternal life. A seat at this table. If you have that, you've got to praise God when you read this stuff. You've got to be thankful to our good and our gracious God. And third, if you have that, friend, what difference will the reception of such kindness make in your life? What difference does it make? What, what will you live for? Who will you live for? We're going to flesh that out in a little while, but let me leave you with just this thought. Saved ones, you have a seat at King Jesus' table. So, who has a seat at yours? Father, we praise you and thank you for your truth that resonates through the ages for the glory of this gospel that you have shared with us. Lord, be magnified and glorified as we continue to worship you in song. Amen. Scott, that was a that was a really good one this morning. Thank you for that. Um, it's funny as he was talking about that towards the end there.